Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Just a moment, but listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, 32, and then we're going to uh, switch, we're going to uh, move to 30, verse 36 as kind of a summary verse. Now, for those of you that pay attention to this stuff, these are like red letter words. So this is what Jesus is actually talking in the Bible, in the New Testament. And here's what it says. <clears throat> then Jesus said to those Jews, notice this, who believed him. So he's not talking to the religious sector that were questioning and trying to reroute what he was saying. These are people that understood he was speaking on behalf of God and they had received and were accepting what he was saying. So this is what he said to those Jews had believed him. If, everybody say if, that's a condition. If you abide in my word and the word abide there in the original language is not talking about visiting once in a while for inspiration or crisis management. It means if you're living there, if you're building your life in that word, he says, then you are my disciples the learned ones, the students, the ones who are shaping and disciplining their lives according to what they're learning. So it's not just casually hearing, well, that's interesting, and then you don't follow through. These are people that have leaned in, and they're shaping themselves. He says, you are my disciples indeed, and here's what happens to disciples who build their life in the word. You shall know the truth. And the word know means to know by conviction, to know with clarity. There's no doubt in your mind. You understand something now with a conviction of heart. Nobody's going to take that away from you. You know what the truth is, not a truth, the truth. And Jesus said, this is the way to get there. He says, and then when you know with conviction and clarity, the truth, then that truth will make you free. Now, people like to just quote part of the verse. Well, the truth will make you free. Well, no, the truth has been around since Jesus came and brought us the word of God. Really, since back in the Old Testament when the prophets were, were prophesying. But just because there's ink on a page stuck somewhere in you know, the back of our closet, that's not going to make us free at all. But if you will build your life in that truth and you let it open up your eyes and you stay with that and you become a follower of Christ for real... The Bible says the truth, the lights will come on and the truth will, will help you to understand with clarity, this is what God promised and this is how things work. And then that truth will go to work and it'll absolutely set you free. In fact, a few verses later in verse 36, it summarizes and says, therefore, if the son makes you free, stop. The way that the son or Jesus makes you free is what he just said in verse 31 and 32. It's you abiding in the word and staying with that and shaping your life by that. And then progressively your life steps in and grows into freedom. This is not a, you know, kind of a, you should try this or maybe it'll work if God smiles on you. This is a concrete divine heaven guarantee. And the Bible says, and when you follow the son, you follow the word, he says, he will make you free and you will be free indeed. Well, here's the big question we've been going on. If, if this is true, and this, this is like a concrete promise and it's super clear in the Bible, not just here, but over and over again, how come so many Christians are not living in freedom? What, why is it that statistics that are out there in the world keep saying over and over that by and large, the church or Christians are just as tangled up, just as twisted around, just as goofed up. They're just a little smarter about what the Bible says, but their lifestyle says, no, you're kind of on par. 
I mean, you're struggling just like, why, why is that when Jesus promised? So we've gone on this lengthy study now of series saying, okay, so if we really are redeemed and delivered from the power and the bondage of sin because of what Jesus did, and by the way, we are. There's no question about that. The Bible's super clear over and over. Either you believe it or you don't. But if that was a, that was a game changer on, on, a, on a divine level, then how come that we keep opening our lives up and we keep staying entangled and allowing this enemy uh, to, to keep us influenced and at times controlled with wrong thinkings and wrong appetites and wrong habits? Why do we just stay tangled up in that? We don't want to be that way. No human being does, whether you're a believer or not. Every human being wants to be the best version of themselves. <clears throat> We as Christians get, get a picture of the architecture of what God says that about us and who we are. And we actually have the opportunity to live that way. But why are so many Christians tangled up? And that's what we've been studying because Jesus wants us to be free. Well, today is kind of the climax of the series. So if you've been following along, especially if you downloaded or you picked up one of the hard copy uh, printed little studies, today will be the last official lesson in your book, and it's actually titled in line with the series, Finding Freedom. And today we're going to look at four essential Bible keys to becoming free. So, okay, pastor, I realize I'm a little tangled up. How do I take those steps and get free? We're going to see four really uh, simple Bible keys, really powerful essential but simple Bible keys. And, uh, and then at the end, I'm going to pray a prayer of deliverance. Maybe it's the first time that you've uh, tracked with that and opened up to that. Maybe you've, been, you've done it a number of times through this series. Um, but I'm going to pray a prayer of deliverance over all of us. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. It's going to help you to begin a journey into your free freedom into a life that is absolutely free in Christ because being free is a journey. Now, let me, let me pause and insert this. I don't know that there's ever been a time in the history of the world, and this is like a big statement, but I don't know there's ever been a time in the history of the world where this is more important. And here's why I'm saying that. I'm saying it based on the Bible, not based on my own objective perspective. Paul told Timothy in both of the letters, First uh, and Second Timothy, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the closer we get into the last days, I mean, the wheels are going to come off the cart. You're going to see some crazy stuff that you never thought you would see in your lifetime. And you're going to see it picking up momentum. And you're going to be shocked at how many people are buying into it. I mean, just nibbling here and nibbling there. Some are just jumping into the deep end. Nope, I, I think that's right. And you're like, what, what are you even talking about? This is insane. That This makes no sense at all. And the New Testament's really clear. And we've gone through some of that. Romans chapter 1 just kind of paints a picture. If you want to read a script as to where the world is headed. But 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul says these are the things that are going to happen. It's happening all around us. And listen, we have to understand just because you've accepted Jesus and you're part of the church, you are not immune to the deception, to the demonic activity that is going on and will continue to accelerate. But if you abide in the truth and you become the follower of Christ, then I'm telling you, you have absolute protection, divine strength, divine guidance. You will live a victorious, free life all the way until Jesus comes. 
And this is a promise, a guarantee of God. But here's what the Bible says, what Paul says. He says, but not every Christian is going to do that. In fact, the, the strong and clear indication in both letters is, as we get into the deep days, there's going to be a falling away from Christians, not just a couple, a lot of them. It's going to shock you. You're going to be like, hey, what, what happened? All of a sudden, I'm in the minority because I'm staying with the word of God. Listen, it's, it's happening. I mean, wake up. And so I think this stuff is more important than ever before because it's not theory. It's not something that we need to understand, you know, and, and just kind of put it in a, a belief system somewhere on the shelf. This is real life relevant happening right now in real time. And God's trying to prepare us. Um, so let me, let me come back to what I was saying. Freedom's a journey though. And it starts with deliverance. It starts when God snaps these chains, these habits, these bondages, these addictions that the enemy has worked really hard and somehow implanted in your life. But then it doesn't stop with deliverance. That's like the first step. That's the prison door opening up. But then you move into discipleship. In fact, we brought this quote with Pastor Jack Hayford, and we've said it over and over again. He said it this way. He said, you can't cast out the flesh and you can't disciple a demon. If you've got something that is influencing or controlling you, you can't disciple that. You've got to get rid of it. But once you get rid of it, you have to learn to grow up now into your freedom and become who God wants you to be. We're back to John chapter 8. You abide in the word. You become a follower of Christ. And he'll completely set your life free. You'll be everything that Jesus promised you would be. Well, again, so today we're going to talk about deliverance. And, and I want to highlight this. It's the last lesson that you're going to find in your book here. But I've done this one other time. It's kind of, I'm kind of taking executive privilege. And, uh, and as I was thinking and praying about next week, which we kind of had a free, you know, what, what's the Holy Spirit saying? I'm going to add one more lesson to this. And so it's not in your printed book. But this week, we're going to talk about deliverance. Next week, I'm just going to give you an overview of discipleship to help you to get started now to walk this out and to live it. Because if all you do is get delivered and you don't, you don't step into discipleship, then the enemy is just going to wait a while and he'll circle right back around and he'll try to put you back in the same prison again. And he's successful with so many people. And they're like, I thought God set me free. He did. But you didn't grow up into that freedom. You didn't understand and change some of the things by becoming a disciple of Jesus. So we're going to talk about that next Sunday. But today we're going to talk about deliverance. And I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 15. For some of you that have been around the church for a long time, uh, this is a very familiar parable we're going to look at. In fact, some would argue it's the most familiar parable. And it's the one about the prodigal son. Now, here's something you might not have paid attention to because lots of Christians, they kind of know it, but they don't bring it to the forefront. Uh, this particular story actually has two sons. And both sons are in the story for an important reason because each of them are going to give us two essential insights, essential truths to becoming free. And they're going to apply to every single one of us. You'll be in the story somewhere. Sometimes I find myself in the story in multiple places. But this story is going to touch every single one of us, and it's important that we all see this. We don't have time to read the whole story. I wish we did. Uh, so if you're not familiar with it, forgive me for that. You can go home, and, and you should read this over because it's a great read. Uh, but, but I'm going to kind of skip through, and I'm going to narrate some, kind of summarize, and we'll grab a verse or two, and then I'm going to narrate a little more just to help us to get through the story and find the really important parts for this morning. So again, Jesus is telling a story to a group of religious people 
not the same people in John chapter 8, a different set of people. And they're, they're, you know, they're pretty uh, contradictory. They're, they're pretty um, uh, critical of who God really loves and who he doesn't. So Jesus actually tells three stories, but this is like the centerpiece story. And he's talking about a godly man, someone who has done the right thing, who has done kind of John chapter 8. He's lived this out, is the implication. But this young, this this godly man has two sons. One of them, the older son, is kind of steady as she goes, and he's just, you know, walking in his father's footsteps as far as we can see. The younger one takes the front of the stage, and he becomes the storyline in the early part of it. Uh, for sure. And so we're going to start looking at him because this younger son, it never actually calls him this, but we know him as the prodigal. Now the word prodigal just means wasteful or reckless or haphazard. And you'll actually see that word describing him later in the text, but that's where we pick up that title from. But as far as they know, he's just a younger son. And let me tell you about some obvious things that we see early on in the story. Number one, the, uh, the younger son is completely oblivious. He's naive to all that it's taken over the years for the father to work and to stay in, in, in covenant, in line with God, to be able to, to build the, whatever the farm is that he has and build the life and acquire the blessings for his family. The second thing is he's completely ignorant to the weightiness of consequences when you make wrong decisions. When you step out and you just do what you want to do, man, those consequences are weighty. Sometimes they don't go away just because you apologize and say, I shouldn't have done that. Sometimes those consequences last for years, maybe even decades while you're working your way back out. But he doesn't see all the seriousness of life. And the last thing that he's completely, uh, that he's completely guilty of, he's, he's, he's impatient to the point that I would say he's entitled. He doesn't realize well, all that it took He doesn't realize all that it takes. All he knows is he wants to live the good life and he wants to live it right now. And so he does the unthinkable, right? We wouldn't even even consider this appropriate in today's culture, but back there especially, he goes to his father and he demands that his father give him his portion of the inheritance right now. Dad's still alive. He's like, I don't want to wait till you're dead. I don't have time for that. I want to do what I want to do now. I want my half right now. And to the surprise, I mean, just the stunning shock of everybody listening, the father does it. Now listen, that's where we'll pick up in the story. The back half of verse 12 says, so he, this is the father, divided, this is important, to them his livelihood. So the younger son's being demanding. And so the father kind of figures it all up. If I weren't around anymore, how would this thing split up? And he brings it and he gives the younger son his inheritance. But the older son's inheritance has been kind of designated. He already knows what it is. He just didn't hand it to him because the older son's not demanding. Now, this is really important, right? So the story goes on. And here's what we find out. As soon as the money hits the younger son's account, he's gone. In fact, verse 13 says this, he journeyed to a faraway country and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. There's the description and that's why we call him the prodigal son. Wasteful, reckless, haphazard, in the moment, whatever I want to do, that's the most important thing. He wasted it on that kind of living. Verse 14 says, but right about the time he'd spent all of it, there arose not just a famine, a severe famine in that land. 
and he began to be in want. Now, this is the opposite of how he saw this going. He thought he was going to get out. He's so smart. He's so slick. He's going to be able to, you know, just give me some money. I can make this happen, and my life is going to be awesome. Because, by the way, that's all he'd ever known in the father's house. Abundant provision. Now he steps out, and he's going to do this on his own. But this story goes completely opposite. If you stay with the story, you find out things got worse and worse and worse. And his life got harder and harder to the point that, quite literally, he's not just hungry. He's homeless. And he's just kind of living out in the pig pen, and he's just trying to make the best until verse 17 picks back up, and that's where we're going to lean in. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, blue-collar workers now, guys that are just showing up on the job, putting in their 8 to 12 hours a day, working the ranch, working the farm, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? And he's like, what? How how does this even make sense? In fact, again, it says, but when he came to himself, another translation says when he came to his senses, when he finally woke up to the realities of life, when he finally sobered up and said, wait, 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 this is not what I thought. And he's just kind of looking at it from the way it really is. Then the Bible says he, he made a decision. And so I told you there were four essential keys. We get the first one right here. Key number one that has to do with our starting our journey of freedom and getting delivered, key number one is recognize that you need help. Recognize that you need help. That seems kind of obvious, right? Because we all know we need help. Yeah, but, but, but most of us kind of try to pull it inside and shove it around the back. And it's not that we really just need help. I've just got some issues I'm trying to work through. And, and okay, I'll, I'll go with you for a little bit on that. But if you're trying to work through them for a year, five years, 10 years, you got some, you got some really bad issues. You got some really strong issues that I don't think you're going to be able to get through them without coming to grips. I need some help with this. And lots of times we're, we're just trying to self-preservation. And so we don't want to come to terms with the fact that, no, th- this is a really big deal. I've, I've been wrestling with this for a long time. I keep repenting and then doing it again and then feeling really bad and repenting and then doing it again. And that cycle's been going on for way longer than I thought. I can't do this on my own. But, but see, there's this part of us that Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 talks about. And it says, there's a way that seems right to a man... But in the end, that's the way of death. Now, what always catches my attention, this seems like it's right. This is not someone who just kind of is floating down the the, the river of life and just whatever's going on. This is someone who's thinking about, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, you know, I I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to change my life. Here's what I'm going to do. And this seems like the right approach. But because it's their approach and not God's approach, it's always going to end up in the same place. Crash and burn. Back in the prison back in disappointment, back in dis- a delusion, di- disillusionment again, always the same thing. In fact, we studied this in the third message of this particular study, and we talked about one of the original sins was pride. And one of the parts of pride, it's not just arrogance, it's when you trust in your own strength and your own ability, when you trust in your own righteousness, like, well, I'm, I'm just kind of measuring my, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy compared to, and you're measuring yourself by yourself. And when you trust in your own wisdom, anytime you do that, and you're not doing what Jesus said in John 8, leaning in and abiding in his word and following him, you're opening yourself up 
to be vulnerable to not just the enemy, but all the hardships and the challenges of this world that none of us can navigate all by ourselves. We need the provision and the power of God. But if we will listen to the Lord, that truth will help us to recognize the error, to recognize we, we need God. I mean, I, I don't like to admit that sometimes, but I, I'm desperate for him. I need him to help me. And then not only that, it'll lead us right out of bondage and, and into to blessing. Uh, you've heard this expression uh, in multiple, sacred, secular, in multiple different ways to phrase it. But let me just kind of give you the, the, the bolder principle in it. You will only get free when you're ready to admit you have a problem. You can call it denial. You can call it, you know, change management. Whatever you want to call it in whatever setting, it comes down to this truth. If you're not ready to admit, I've got a problem and I need help, then you will never, ever, ever be free. And so here's a question that I just kind of want to let linger a little bit as the Holy Spirit's talking to us through the word. If you've been around during this series at all, maybe you've hit and miss, maybe you've heard all of them. What's the Holy Spirit been talking to you about? Because he is, right? He loves us. He's not trying to condemn us. He's trying to say, hey, let me help you with that. What is it he's been talking about? What area or areas of your life? And the second question is, are you ready? Are you willing to acknowledge, I need some help? And if you are, then that leads us to the second essential key. You don't even get to the second key if you're not, not willing to step into the first one. But the second key is, you have to repent to God and here, listen, here's an add-on, and to others. You have to repent to God and to others. Now, let me read you why that's true in the story, and then we'll talk a little bit about what that means, because that's really important that we really understand from the Bible what that means. So we're back in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 17, get a little bit of a running start. But when he came to himself, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? Verse number 18, once he recognized and admitted he needed help, verse number 18, here's what he's going to do. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Notice the add-on, verse 19, and I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Now, let's just stop and back up. When we talk about repentance, it's really important that we understand the Bible definition for that. Because we, we like to say repentance, but what we think is confessing or admitting to doing something wrong, or we might even include admitting to doing something wrong and feeling really bad about it. And, and don't get me wrong, True repentance will include admitting something, and it may probably will at some point include feeling remorseful at, at having gone down that particular path. But true repentance is not really either of those things. True repentance comes from the Greek word metanaeo, and it literally means to change your mind. You can admit to doing something wrong. You can actually feel bad about it. And not change, not make a decision to change your mind about doing something differently, thinking something differently. And the Bible is more important than what's uh, more focused on what's going on in the heart. Are you willing to admit and change your mind about something? If you'll do that, eventually that's going to come out of your mouth and that's going to deal with and soften your heart. But if you reverse that and you feel like, well, if I, I, I might as well go ahead and admit it because I'm caught. I might as well just go ahead and confess it and admit it, and I'll, you know, I'll feel really bad about it most of the time because I feel bad about getting caught, not necessarily about doing it. But nothing else changes in your life. That is not repentance at all. 
Here's another add to repentance. When the Bible says change your mind, if we're looking collectively at the New Testament, it's not hard. You just kind of have to walk along and say there, 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 because it's glaringly obvious. We're not talking about just changing your mind about the thing you did. We're talking about changing your mind about God. Is he God? Or is this just like a really great suggestion of things you probably should adhere to? Does he get to have the final say? Is his word the standard by which we live? See, those are the big mind-changing alterations we have to make. And then changing your mind about yourself. What does God say about you before, but also after the thing that you've done over and over and over again? What does God say about you? How does he, how does he see you? What's he trying to get across to you? See, those kind of things are really important, and that's what true repentance is. And when we see that, we can see repentance has a layering effect to it. Repentance is not a one-time thing. You can come to an acknowledgement, that is not what God said. And you can begin to bring that to the surface and say, I'm going to change my mind. But the Bible talks to us about this repentance, this changing of the heart, changing of the mind is a layered progression. Let me give you a scripture for that. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, listen to this, by the renewing, that's, that's an ongoing verb, by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing means to renovate to completely change for the better, to recreate, to reprogram, to take out what you used to think and put something totally different in there that will head you a different direction. And notice this, it says you should do that because when you do that, then you will prove. It means to demonstrate. You will provide evidence in what's going on in your life what is the good and the more acceptable and finally the fully mature or the perfect will of God. There's a layering process. We, we can recognize error and we can repent and confess, boy, I am going to change my mind on that because God said, I don't want to. Be honest with you, my flesh kind of likes the old way, but I'm recognizing that's not God's way, so I'm going to be intentional to make a decision and then I'm going to keep renewing my mind and I'm going to grow into this brand new lifestyle, when you do that, your life will begin to progressively reflect. You'll get freer and freer and more full of joy and fulfillment and, and, and the blessings of the Lord will begin to materialize more and more and more. You'll have more and more victory. It's a process. And it's important that we understand this. So to repent means that we are, we are admitting that God says do it differently and we're changing our mind intentionally and then we're going to grow ourselves into it. But notice I didn't say just repent to God, repent to others. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is obvious, we all know that, because sometimes there's been an offense or a hurt and we need to get that cleaned out. So we repent to others to get forgiveness. In fact, this is so important to God that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached it this way. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and when you're there, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. He says, leave your gift right there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is saying is, I would rather you go take care of it there and then come take care of it over here. I, I don't want you just to take care of it here and then you talk yourself out of it. Well, you know, it's probably, probably best I don't even bring it up. He said, go take care of it there 
and then come back and take care of it. And by the way, if you're in the middle of a worship service in church, it doesn't mean leave church and go do it, okay? It means make that a priority in your mind and say, listen, this is all part of this. And I've got to do that. In fact, this says, if you realize that they're frustrated with you, but he preaches again in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and he reverses it and says, if you realize you have something against them, but it's the same thing. So it doesn't matter where this thing started, who got impacted and why. All that matters is that there's something wrong. You need to take care of that because it will clog your heart and your pipeline uh, from, from being able to receive from God. But the other reason that's just as important that we kind of don't really buy into so much in today's contemporary American church is you repent to others for purposes of support and accountability and ministry. This is hugely important, but we've kind of got this consumer isolated, like, no, we can just me and God, we can do it all. And I don't know where we get that from because it's not Old Testament or New Testament. We're desperate to live with other people that are investing into our lives, that are helping us to, to watch and to sharpen and to provoke us towards living right, to encourage us at times to pick us back up or to grab us and pull us back in. What are you doing out there? You're supposed to be in here. You're part of the spiritual family. And these are, these are super, super important. In fact, let me just give you one really uh, important one that will help you to see some things here. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, we are to confess our trespasses. That's not just sins you commit. It's sins that are going on inside in your thoughts, in your emotions. It's a weakness. It's kind of a fault. It's an error. It's something that you're struggling to get victory in. It says you, you need to confess those. You need to get them out in the light. And it says to confess them to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We looked at this a few weeks ago. I've been talking about it already this morning. But again, that word heal is the Greek word aeomai. It means progressively healed. It means you start something when you get it out in the light. You don't keep it in the dark where the enemy keeps working on you and, and pushing it farther and farther down and farther and farther back. But you find trusted people, a network of faith-believing, Bible-trusting Christians, and you begin to roll out and you begin to say, I'm going to live my life in the open. Here's what you find out. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's walking with the Lord and facing challenges. And you find out, huh, this, we're kind of all in the same battle, the same journey. But we have to confess that, and then we pray for one another, and progressively it gets healed. And this is why, because the effective and the fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. Now let me show you practically, listen. This is why we don't just talk to you about the importance of being in the Word of God on a daily basis. That's not legalistic. That's just realistic about what we need in spiritual encouragement and spiritual nurturing. But this is also why we, we talk to you guys about, you, you got to find a connect group. You, you got to get into a group of people that you can begin talking to and little by little you, you grow in, in a trusting relationship and you feel safer and safer to begin to open up parts of your life, whether to the whole group or you find certain members of the group and you grab coffee. You've got to be able to do life together. This is the Bible way. Over and over. He, Hebrews chapter 10 says, especially when we see the days getting darker, the last thing you want to do is to kind of isolate yourself. You want to step deeper in, keep assembling yourself with other believers so that you can provoke one another towards love and towards continuing to do what God's telling us to do. This is essential. This is also why we do altar team stuff. 
And, and for some Christians, like, they're still getting used to that, right? Wait, you mean I'm just supposed to walk down there and they're just supposed to pray for me? And yeah, we lay hands on the sick and healing always comes. We lay hands on people when they're going through struggles. And the Bible says when we pray for them, that the effective fervent prayer starts availing and God begins to move progressively in their life right then. And this, this is normal for Christians. If you understand the Bible, this is normal. And we make it available every single Sunday during the week if you need it. But we have times where people walk up and you say, I want someone to pray. I'm going through this circumstance. I'm going through this challenge. And we can do it week after week after week after week because progressively we're getting another round of meds, another round of therapy, another round of God's divine strength and divine intervention and encouragement. And this is part of the discipleship process, but it also starts in our deliverance process. We have to be willing to confess not just to God, but we have to find a way to get that out in the light. If you, if you keep it a secret, the enemy will always have the upper hand. If you get it out into the light, you completely disarm him. Because now somebody knows and somebody's going to be praying for you and encouraging you and helping you to walk through that. And so, number one, we have to recognize we need help. Number two, we have to repent to God and to others. Here's number three. Number three, we have to renounce the lies of Satan. Now, these are kind of cascading, so they're systematic. If you're not willing to recognize you've got a problem, and you're not willing to kind of get it out in the light with God and with other people, then it's going to be really hard to renounce the lies of Satan because he's the one has got the loudest voice. And he's going to keep screaming at you and screaming at you and screaming at you. But listen to me, every single bondage we have, whether they're big or small, strong, or just kind of, you know, getting rooted in our life, every single one of them begins with a lie. And here's how the lie works. The enemy will begin to dilute the importance of the word of God and put more of the importance in how you feel and what you think. In other words, he'll tell you that the benefit of doing it your way or doing what you want to do is, is worth it rather than staying in the word of God and the disciplines of God. He'll lie to you that way. And so he's dangling the carrot and it looks so good and you deserve this. You've been working so hard. Nobody really loves you or understands you. And if you'll do this, you're going to feel so much better. And by the way, the Bible's honest and says there is a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of momentary relief in sin. But quickly, as soon as that happens, then he switches, he switches tactics. And now he's going to condemn you. He's going to drive your nose into the ground. How dare you? You said you were a Christian. You can't even walk faithful. I can't believe you fell for that again. And he's just going to keep doing that over and over. But he won't stop there. He'll convince you at some point as early on as he can that God doesn't, God doesn't see you the same way anymore. Yeah, he, he did it first, but you've made this mistake so many times and God's not going to really forgive you. And by the way, don't you dare tell anybody else because they will never see you the same. From that point on, you'll be ruined and they'll never see you the same. And this, these are the lies of the enemy. But Jesus came and said, that's not true. If you'll be my disciple and you'll stay in the word, he said, I'll completely set you free. I'll walk through the messiest situations of your life and I will completely set you free. Now, now here's what I want you to watch. The, the younger son started in that, but then the older son picks it up and takes it to a whole nother level. And there's an important reason we need to see that. So stay with me here. Luke chapter 15, we're in verse 21. And the son, this is the younger son, he, he arrives back at the father's ranch and the father sees him on the porch, drops his coffee cup, runs down the road, throws his arms around him. But the, but the, the younger son 
has already starting to, to, uh, to make his plea that we read about in verse 19. He said, this one, I'm going to say this to dad, and, and then I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to admit I really messed up, and I don't deserve to be your son. And so he's been rehearsing that all the way home. Dad sees him, dad's running, and just as dad gets there, he starts talking, and the son said to him, the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And again, verse 19 says, he's just about to say, just make me one of your hired servants. Just let me sleep. Just let me sleep on the ranch. Just give me, you know, the the beans and bread or whatever it takes. I just don't want to be an outcast anymore. He's just about ready to say that. But verse 22 says the father cuts him off, not even listening to him. The father with tears streaming down his face is hugging him and kissing him. He's smiling from ear to ear. Every single morning, he's been stepping out on the porch, hoping he would see his son come over the horizon. And today's the day. And his, his father is excited. And he's, he starts yelling to the servants, hey, get the party ready. We're going to celebrate. And verse 24 says, for this, my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And that ends wonderfully. That's what all of us are hoping that we'll experience with the Lord when we come back to the Lord the first time or the 400th time, we're hoping we're still going to find a father with wide open arms, tears streaming down his face. All I care about is that you're home. Let's get a fresh start and let's go from here. And that's kind of the moral of the story. Now, the religious people were shocked. They were outraged. What? With the grievous sin that the younger son did, and yet the father forgave everything. And that was the point that Jesus was making. We can't outsin the Heavenly Father's love. We can't outsin his, his forgiveness and grace if we'll admit we have a problem, if we're willing to, to confess or to repent that and to confess, and if we're willing to stop believing the lies of Satan and move toward God instead of away from God, we will always find the open arms of a Heavenly Father ready to start all over again. But listen to me. Lots of Christians kind of say, okay, the story's done. The story's just getting started. Because listen to what happens next. Verse 25. Now his older son who was in the field. This is the guy who stayed on the ranch. He's been working, working every day, man. He's in work on time. He's putting in extra hours. He's doing everything that that he, he thinks that the father wants him to do. He's trying to earn his keep and earn his father's favor. He's doing all this stuff. It says, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now we'll skip verse 26 and verse 27 because it says he called over some of the workers and said, what's going on? They said, hey, your younger brother's home and your dad's like throwing a party, man. He's so excited. And let's pick up in verse 28. But he, the older brother, was angry and he wouldn't go into the house. So when his father found out, his father came out and he pleaded with him. And so the older brother answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. Now watch this. Because what he's going to say next is going to show that he's bought into two lies from the enemy. Now, the prodigal son bought into a bunch of lies, and he ran off and tried to do his own thing, and it was disastrous, just like the Bible said it would be. But the older son's the guy who stayed in the house. He's been coming to church every Sunday. He's been paying his tithe. He's been doing the best he can to not do the bad stuff and to do as much of the good stuff as he knew how. And he's been just plodding along. And yet, even though he was stayed in the house, the, the enemy still was able to get in and imprison him in the house, just like he did the prodigal son who left the house so blatantly. 
And so listen to this. So he, he, he says, lo, these many years I've been serving you. Now watch two lies. The first thing, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Never. And the second lie, he said, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. Now hold on to those. We're going to come back, but let's just finish the story. He says, but as soon as this son of yours came back, who devoured all your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him and listened to the father's heart. He said, and the father said to him, son, you're always with me. Not just you're always on the farm. Like, no, you've always been at home. You're, you're with me. You're, you're right here. You've always been right here. This, everything that I'm doing, that's for you. Everything that I'm doing is to build a life for you. You're always with me. And he says, and listen, and all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. He said, it, but it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother because he was dead. And now he's alive again. And he was lost and he's found. Now listen to the amazing thing. The older brother, again, never left home, always showed up on time, always at church, always paying his tithe, always lifting his hands in worship, and you know, always trying to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing, and yet the enemy sold him two lies because he's in as much spiritual poverty, in as much bondage in his understanding of who the father is than the guy who just walked away from church and backslid and didn't care who knew it. But, but he's all twisted up, and, and here's the first lie. In verse 29, he said, I never transgressed against your commandments at any time. Again, we studied this about pride. And when you start looking at your own life and you start comparing it to other people, well, I'm not as bad as my brother. He left home and look, look at what he's doing. And I'm, at least I'm here. At least I'm doing the best I can and I'm showing up. And you start measuring your own behavior by the standards that you create. But listen, here's what's worse. Then you think that God's measuring your behavior by that. And because he says, well, you know, you're not as bad as your younger brother. So, okay, listen, the father's love and his grace doesn't depend on our behavior. It's in spite of our behavior. Now, he, he loves us and he wants the best for us. But just because we're a bad little boy or a bad little girl doesn't mean dad doesn't love us anymore. I hope he loves us enough to talk to us. The Bible says he will. But he'll never stop loving us. And this guy, you know, this, this guy said, but I've never done anything wrong. You know what he's saying is, I'm pretty much perfect. I mean, I'm, I'm just nailing it, right? I'm, I'm doing all the things right. But, but here's the problem with that. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, like we're perfect, we've arrived, it says, then we've deceived ourselves and the truth has already run away from us. It's not even in us anymore. We're back in deception again. In fact, the reason it said that, because Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 3.23 and says, everybody sinned and falls short of the glory of God. There's not any one of us in here that are perfect. We're all growing. We're all moving forward. We're all still subject to the temptations and the testings of the flesh and desperately relying on the word of God and the Holy Spirit to keep us fortified and keep us shielded from that. This is so important. And yet he's like, you know, no, I, I've, never, I've, not done, I've never done anything wrong. I deserve this. But here's line number two. Line number two, he says, and you never so much as gave me a young goat. Hold on. I pulled your attention to the beginning of the story when the younger son demanded his part of the adherences and the father divided to them. To them. 
And if we're following culture, the older son would have gotten two-thirds. He would have gotten a double portion of what the younger son would have gotten. So technically, when he divided up to them and he kind of shoved the, you know, the tallies across the table, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son got one-third, cashed it out, and went and had a great time. But he said, you've never given me anything. But just in case he missed it, the father repeats himself and says, listen, everything that I've got belongs to you. But see, here he is and he's bought a light. Let let me tell you why this is so relevant. Because there's so many Christians that are faithful in church. And and, and they've they've just tried to do the right thing. They've been, you know, at church and and involved and serving and paying their tithe. and, And yet somewhere along the line, they begin to get discouraged and disillusioned. The blessing didn't come as fast as they thought. The healing didn't come the way they thought it should. You know, the promotion that they really wanted didn't really materialize in the way they thought it should. And they began to get discouraged and buy into the lie. And they begin to say, well, I don't understand it because I'm, I'm doing the best I can and, and God's blessing that person and God's blessing these people and he's not blessing me. And little by little, you become imprisoned in your mind, not realizing that all that the Father has is open to you. You've got access to all of it. But see, we, we'll settle if we're not careful. And we'll say, well, at least we got heaven. At least when we get to heaven, it's going to be awesome. And we cut ourselves short from living in the freedom and the victory that God wants us to have here. There are millions of Christians all around the world that are living in a lower level of mediocrity. And they're doing it by choice. Because they just don't believe that God is that good. They just don't believe that God really is a faithful God, that he really is a God who cannot and will not lie. If he said it, he will do it. They can't give him that credibility. Now, now they'll give that credibility to other people, but they won't give it to God. And it's all because they bought into a lie. It's all because they're as deceived as the people that have walked away from God. They're just as deceived. They're just doing it inside of the circle of the house. And by the way, that's even more dangerous Because you're like James chapter 1, you're hearing the word all the time, but you're not ever experiencing or living it out, and you just live in this self-deception, like, well, I don't know why God doesn't do it for me, because I'm perfect, because I'm doing everything right. And for some reason, he just won't give me anything. That's absolutely not the truth. And listen to me, you need to recognize it, and you need to repent from it, and you need to be delivered from that kind of thinking, because that is wrong thinking that will keep you in bondage. It's designed by the enemy. When you do all of that, when you renounce those kinds of lies of the enemy, here's the last one, and we'll wrap it up. Then the next, the only other thing to do is to receive the gifts of the Father. And by the way, that sounds like the fun part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just get to that part. I just want to receive the gifts, but listen. Sometimes that's the most challenging part for Christians to do. Put yourself in the prodigal son's shoes. Now, we, we don't really know how the end of the story uh, with, with the older brother, we don't know whether he went on in the house or he said, ah, you're right, dad, I'm sorry. And he, we, don't, we don't know. And, and sometimes I think that's intentional because in the church, you know, it can go either way. People can hear this and say, man, you're right, Pastor, and I, I just need to let the Word of God be the deciding. I need to lean back into my, to my relationship with the Lord and begin to build faith. And, and other people say, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I, I've just been down this road too many times, so I, I don't know. But I know what God wants to do, and we see it in the prodigal son. Here he's messed up royally, and he did it in front of everybody. And he came home and he was just ready to get hired as kind of the common labor, minimum wage, just, just make sure I get, you know, the lunch from the lunch truck and, and I'll, I'll be, just be happy. 
And the father said, absolutely not. And when he, when he stepped in, the father restored him and gave him three very significant gifts. I'm going to go through them really fast. We're not going to teach on them. Number one, uh, the Bible says that he put a robe on his back in verse number 22. He put a robe on his back. And that shows that he had family clout or family position. He wasn't just somebody else roaming around the farm. But he's wearing the robe, uh, and in fact, Isaiah 61 verse 10 says this, For he, that's God, has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We are not qualified as part of God's family because of our behavior. We're qualified because of what Jesus did for us. And like the prodigal son, no matter what life's look like, we're welcomed back and the robe of the family signia is put on us and everybody in the spiritual world knows it. Sometimes we're the only ones that are struggling. Number two, he put a ring on his hand and that represented kingdom authority. So back in that day, if you had the signet ring, you know, you, you could seal things, you could make decisions, you carried the authority. So if you walked up to a situation, everybody saw that ring and they knew, you know, you've got the clearance, you've got the authority to be able to make decisions. Luke chapter 10, verse 19, here's what Jesus said, behold, I give you, talking to his followers, but ongoingly he's talking to us, everyone who believes, behold, I give you the authority and notice what that authority covers, to trample on serpents and scorpions. And that's just not creepy, crawly, stingy, you know, stingy things. That he's talking about uh, their, their metaphors for all that the enemy comes to do. He sneaks up in your life. He tries to grab you from behind. He'll hide, you know, you'll stick your hand down in something. He'll sting you. And all of those he's intending to be lethal to take your life out. But he says, we have the authority to trample over every one of those things. And notice this, and over all, everybody say all. All the power of the enemy, all. And that word power is dunamis. It means demonstrated, demonstrate. Things you're experiencing, not things that, you know, might happen, the what ifs, things that are absolutely happening in your life and the lives of other people around the world. You can see it and you're like, oh, that's crazy. He said, we have been given authority over all of the power of the enemy, not worldwide, but where your world's concerned where your world is concerned. You have the authority over anything that the enemy is bringing to demonstratively, to experientially begin to put pressure on you or begin to try to put you back into a, into a box and into a hole. You have the authority over that and listen to the final thing. And nothing, everybody say nothing. I love when God uses all-inclusive terms because they challenge me, right? I'm like, well, yeah, most of the time. I mean, no, always. And absolutely nothing, he said, nothing shall by any means, from any approach, from any angle, in any circumstance, nothing will by any means hurt you. And that word hurt actually means to overwhelm, to overcome, to bring lasting harm and abuse to you. He says, listen to me, if you are walking in the word of God and you understand this authority, he said, you are well equipped by the, by the spirit and the power of God so that there's not any challenge, not anything that'll come at you that will bring lasting hurt or lasting harm. In fact, it's a reflection of Isaiah 54, 17 that says no weapon formed against you will prosper. None. They'll be formed, but they're not going to prosper. And he goes on, he says, and every tongue that rises against you, Every lie, every whisper, whether it's coming from someone on the outside or it's that little voice on the inside where the enemy's trying to condemn you and drag you down and convince you, well, yeah, I know, but that's not actually what the Bible is, is meaning. That's exactly what it means. 
He says, you get to condemn that. You get to listen to that voice and say, that's not true. Nope, that's not what God says. That is not going to happen. Nope, you're not going to take me down. Nope, I didn't come this far for this whole thing to erode underneath me. God is going to lead me in triumph some way, somehow. I'm not going to accept those lies. This is what we're supposed to be doing with the power and the authority that God's given us. Here's the last thing, uh, and that is they put shoes on your feet. And, And this one's really interesting because it's the ability and the power and the authority to establish something. In fact, here's what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15 said. It lists it as one of our weapons. And it says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When it says that, we think about, you know, the shoes of peace. We might be thinking about your fuzzy bedroom slippers, you know, at the end of a long day, you kind of slide into them like, ah, oh, you know, that's not what it's talking about. These are military shoes that prepares you to stand your ground and if necessary to stamp out any challenges, any aggression that comes against you while you're trying to do what God has asked you and has called you to do. And it promises you, listen, you've got, you've got shoes that can do the stamping. It would be like saying, you need to put your foot down. And we know what that means, right? Sometimes you just got to put your foot down and say, okay, that's it. We're not doing that anymore. That's the shoes and the gospel of peace. Jesus has established this. And you're well prepared now to put your foot down in any situation and say, no, this is going to be the way God said it's going to be. End of story. I don't know how it's going to work out. That's not my job. That's God's. But this is going to be the way God said it was going to be. End of story. And you can put your foot down. These are the gifts that God has given you. And listen to me deliverance, the moment you get delivered, you get those three gifts just like the prodigal did. But here's what you need to understand. Just because you have the gifts doesn't mean that you're confident and you know how to step into them. That's discipleship. Now you start walking and you start growing up into, and you start, you begin to realize, man, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I have the authority. I don't have to just be pushed around in life. I don't care. What, I think if the whole world's going this way. Psalm 91, David said, a thousand at my side and 10,000 at my right hand, but not me. Not me. I'm the only one in 11,000 people, but I'm that one statistic that says, yeah, but not me. Because this is what God said. And see, when you begin to realize that's what you have the moment you're delivered, then you start leaning into discipleship and little by little you grow up into that confidence. Until, listen, you're, you're in a whole different ballgame. You're not shaken. You're not rattled by, by anything anymore. You, you, you can see it. You're like, ah, that's really bad. But I'm going to keep walking with the Lord because he's enough. He's enough for me. Here's what I want to do as we end today. Again, I, I just want you to, to let the Holy Spirit uh, talk to you. It's not a weird moment or anything. It's just stepping into the gifts that the Lord given us. And, and I'm going to pray a prayer of deliverance over you. Now, listen to me. It'll begin something. If you haven't done it yet, it'll begin something. But, but this is important. If you've got one of these printed books, or if you don't, go download one, because in the very back of the last lesson, there's a prayer of deliverance for you. It's not something that I say kind of one time declaratively, this is important and we're going to do it. But this is a prayer for you to take your time and work through. There's places for you to, for you to pause and say, Holy Spirit, what, what have you been talking to me about? And very specifically say, okay, you know what? I changed my mind on that. I'm not going to do it that way anymore. I really don't know the new way to do it, but I know this is not the new way. This is a bad way. I'm going to begin to go a different way. And it walks you through this prayer of deliverance. It, it may take you over a period of days, weeks, but it's important that you walk through that prayer as part of your devotion time and let the Holy Spirit begin to do something in your heart. 
And listen to me, if, if you feel like you need some help, we have ministry available here that'll step by step walk you into your freedom, help you to understand, no, that, that's not true. This is what God wants to do. And we'll walk you right into freedom. I'm telling you, God's doing this for people every week, every day. And we want everybody in this church to be free so that we can help set other people free. And so this is really important, but let me close today. And I'm going to, I'm just going to pray a prayer of deliverance over you. So if you bow your head and close your eyes, and again, as always, uh, don't just listen to what I'm praying, but let your heart uh, be involved in this. So Heavenly Father, first of all, I thank you for the promise of God and for all the work you did in the plan of redemption that settles the issue. There's not anything that we've done to mess things up or the enemy's done to mess things up that will keep us from being every single thing you've called us to be. I believe what Jesus said. He'll completely set us free to be who he's called us to be. And right now, Lord, I take authority over every power of the enemy, every lie from the smallest whisper to the one that started years ago that's just held them in a prison of, of small thinking or, or of wrong thinking. Lord, every lie of the enemy, every maneuver, everything that he's trying right now in circumstances, Lord, I command him to cease and desist. And I cancel out every one of those strategies, every one of those plans. None of them will prevail. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking you now to step in. And would you convince everybody who's listening with an open heart, would you convince them, would you help them to recognize where they need help and convince them today's the day? Would you help them to begin to bring that out into the light, first with you, God, but also to find trusted people, mature people in the word of God, to reach out and get extra help if they need it. But Lord, to, to, to begin their journey of freedom by confessing and repenting that. Lord, would you help them to identify and renounce every lie of the enemy? He's not going to tell them anything that's true, but you're the one who's speaking truth and you're the one who's speaking blessing. And finally, Lord, would you help them to truly receive and to begin to position themselves to grow up into the gifts of the Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary, who rose again on the third day in victory, we command freedom to all who will receive it right now. again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.